Good morning, everybody. As uh, many of you know, we are just keep on keeping on tracking through the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first of four biographies that begin the New Testament. There's four Gospels, so four biographies about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Matthew is the first one in your New Testament. And we've been here for a, quite a while, and we're sort of in the, the last third or so of it. Now, where we've been at specifically is a portion of Scripture where Jesus has been increasingly making the religious ruling class angry. And he's going to continue in that, that kind of, continue on that path today by the telling of a parable. Matthew chapter 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding feast, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all who they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to look at his guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, if we're being honest, this is a kind of mysterious, hard to understand, and at points kind of bizarre and strange parable. It's very difficult. I mean, there's like a wedding feast and some people are invited. They don't show up. Messengers go out and those messengers get killed. Then some people show up and then there's a guy in there without the right clothing. And so he gets killed or cast into the outer darkness. So it's kind of very mysterious and very difficult for us to understand. So in order to properly sort of dig into this, there's some, some opening notes that we have to bring to our attention. Um, first, this is a parable. It's a parable. Now, if you remember, you've been tracking with us, parables do something in the life of Jesus. Our English word parable comes from the Greek word parabole, and parabole is the smashing together of two Greek words, para and bole. Para means uh, alongside of or beside of something, and then the bole part of that word means to throw. So parabole in a super simplistic um, literal sense means to throw something alongside of something. And so in this instance, Jesus is throwing a story alongside of another story. And without addressing one story, he is actually telling you a lot about that story through another story. So you have to remember the kind of the, the function of the parables. Two, um, as previously mentioned, this is coming at the end of a section where Jesus has been making a lot of people angry, especially the religious ruling class. 
If you go back a few weeks, he enters into Jerusalem. It's called the triumphal entry. People are saying, you're the son of David. You're the Messiah. That angers people. And then he drives out people in the temple. He cleanses it. He drives out both those who bought and sold. And he says, you have turned my father's house, this temple, to a den of thieves. Rather, it should be a house of prayer for all nations. And then there's some children telling Jesus that he's the son of David. And some of the religious ruling class come to him and they're like, tell these children to be quiet. Then he quotes a psalm that essentially says, out of the mouth of babies or children, uh, God will receive praise and silence his enemies, which in this case would be the people making the accusation. Then he tells a couple parables that anger the, the kind of the elite of the day. And he ends this section with this story. And so it's a long buildup of Jesus making a certain group incredibly angry. Now the problem is, it's kind of a weird parable. It's hard to decipher all the components of it. The good news is, is that whatever the parable is doing, Jesus, in a sense, gives us the meaning and purpose of the parable with the last verse. Because after he goes through the parable, he says in verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. So whatever's going on, Jesus ends the parable by saying, don't you know, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, this verse is often um, said in isolation. Um, If you've grown up in church, you've heard this phrase, many are called, few are chosen. And it's, again, most often, it's, it's just kind of recited alone without the rest of it. But in context, this is the ending an interpretation of this mysterious parable. So you have to remember where it belongs in the literature, and then on top of that, understand where the saying belongs in the historical sense. So who is Jesus saying this to? He's in Jerusalem at Passover time. So there's obviously um, common worshipers there gathered at the temple to, to celebrate Passover, but he's been in a back and forth kind of conflict with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the priest. So if you are in Israel in the first century and you are part of the religious leadership of Israel, when you hear someone talking about the chosen and the called, what immediately comes to your mind? Who are God's chosen? Who are God's called? All throughout the Old Testament, this is explicitly stated again and again. The chosen people are Israel. This is, it's, it's, it's abundantly clear. It's explicitly clear. So when Jesus starts talking about those who are called and chosen, they're going, oh, that's us. Many are called, few are chosen. That's us, that's us. I could show you dozens of verses, but here's one that just makes it explicitly clear, Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So who's the chosen? Who's the called? The people listening would go, it's us. It's Israel. But in the parable, Jesus is making a distinction, a sharp distinction. He's going, not everyone who's invited actually ends up at the wedding feast. In other words, um, just because you are a part of Israel doesn't mean you get to reject the son of the king of Israel and get away with it. And then what he does next is brilliant. Jesus does this brilliant move. Jesus takes the entire Old Testament prophetic tradition and compresses it into a single story, this parable. Jesus 
looks at the Old Testament and sees a pattern, a type of event that repeats itself again and again and again and again. And he looks at this long pattern that repeats itself and compresses all of those instances and encounters into one image that's embodied in this story, in this parable. Now, in order to understand the parable and how this compression and pattern is being looked at by Jesus, you have to go back and look at some of these encounters to see what Jesus is doing. So what I wanna do briefly is look back at the pattern that Jesus is pointing to. We need to look at the prophets and their relationship with the rulers of the, the day and how the rulers of the day interacted with the prophets that God had sent. And when you do that, then all of a sudden the parable will start to come to life. So let's start off with a prophet that's um, more well-known, Elijah, one of the more famous prophets. Uh, Elijah prophesies in the days of King Ahab. And 1 Kings 16 tells us this. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all those who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So Ahab, bad guy. Marries Jezebel, evil woman. So you have an evil king and an evil queen sitting on the throne, and their wickedness is apparent. So what does God do? God sends prophets to warn the rulers that they need to repent and return to him. What do they do to the prophets? And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, pause, that means she kills the prophets of the Lord. Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them bread and water. Evil king and queen, the rulers are bad. God sends prophets. They kill the prophets. Prophets go into hiding. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if you do not make your life as the life of one of them by the time of tomorrow. The point of this is she's gonna kill him too, verse three. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life. Jezebel says, I'm gonna kill you. Just like I killed these other people. It's very heavy. Another, another instance of the pattern, the prophet Micaiah. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord to whom we may inquire? Okay, so a bit of the context. Um, king of Israel is going to go into battle, but he wants to know, is this battle going to go well for me? Am I going to be victorious? Are we going to win the day? And so he gathers all these prophets together and they're like, go up. The Lord will give it into your hand, O king. You're awesome. You're the best king. God's on your side. And then one of the other rulers, Jehoshaphat said, mm, they, these guys sure, pro I mean, we don't know his motivation, but he's probably going, these guys sure sound like a lot of yes men. They're just telling you what you want to hear. Is there any other prophets in the land? Ah, there is. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imla, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, okay, let the king say so. Let's bring, it, let's bring in this Micaiah guy. Let's bring Micaiah in. So all the other prophets, you're good, great. Micaiah comes in. He always says bad news according to the king, which means what? He's usually speaking the truth. 
Micaiah comes in and he says, if you go into this battle, you will lose and you will die. What does the king do in response to Micaiah? And the king of Israel said, seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you people. Okay, you have to understand, this Micaiah dude doesn't mess around. To tell the king, you're going to die. You're going to lose. And then they're like, throw him in a dungeon. And essentially, this is a slow form of torture. It says, um, feed him meager rations of bread and water. So you're only given bread and water, and you're only given just enough to keep you alive. And Micaiah at that point doesn't go, wait, wait. There's more to the story, O king. Although at first it appears like defeat, you will be victorious. No, what does Micaiah do? He knows that the judgment. I'm going into prison. They're going to starve me. And he says, look, if you come back here alive, God didn't speak through me. This is not messing around. So do you see a little bit of a pattern? Okay. Wickedness, God sends prophets to warn. And then the rulers respond, not in repentance or returning to the Lord, but they attack the prophet. Another example. Some more obscure prophets, Hanani. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. And he goes on just to basically say, all of this is happening to you because you have not turned to the Lord. What does the king do? Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. So they throw the prophet in the stocks. Now the Hebrew word for stocks here could mean anything from a small room of, of something like solitary confinement, or it can mean something akin to how we understand the stocks where you, you basically get someone and you put their limbs in an extremely uncomfortable position and, and you lock them in it just to, to kind of prolong their suffering in this uncomfortable position. Another example, Uriah. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, from Kirath-Jerim. And he prophesied against the city and against this land in words like those of Jeremiah. Good prophet, He's prophesying against the people, saying you need to repent and turn to the Lord, otherwise destruction will come. What happens? And when King Jehoiakim, with all of his warriors and all of his officials, heard the words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan, the son of Akbar, and others with him. And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. They kill him. Jeremiah, one of the more well-known prophets, often called the weeping prophet. Um, and it's a little unfortunate. I mean, he, he does... He does weep and cry a lot, but, um, and he wrote like the book of Lamentations, 
But it's like, usually when it's talked about, oh, Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. So he, he's the guy, if you could relate to, if you're often sad and you're a little bit down and blue, and it's like, it's kind of done in a belittling way to Jeremiah, like he's whiny. It's like, if Jeremiah's life is horrible, it's horrific. If you had Jeremiah's life, you'd be crying all the time too. Like nonstop, he, he, he sees horrific tragedy upon horrific tragedy. And on top of that, and seeing kind of the, the destruction and torment of his people in his own personal life, sometimes he's thrown into the stocks. He's barred from the temple. He's beaten. He's thrown into a dungeon and starved. One time they throw him into a big giant cistern with, with mud that he's sinking in and is barely surviving for his life. He's forced to go into Egypt. So you'd be, you'd be a little distraught too. But here's the point. Jeremiah brings the message of the Lord, says, repent, return, and he's mistreated, he's abused. Now, one more example, which is probably the most haunting of all the examples and is illustrative to the point of Jesus, probably in the best manner. It's the story of the prophet Zechariah. Second Chronicles 22 Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. Okay, just kind of pause, brief historical note. Um, Ahaziah has died, and the queen, the the mother, um, basically goes on a rampage, eliminating the rest of the royal family. So what's going on? Most likely, there is not a clear heir apparent. There is no one like clearly in line to be the next king. Maybe it's because um, it's just not clear for whatever reason. Maybe everyone's children, maybe they're babies, maybe they're too young. Maybe there's some political alliances. I mean, we don't have all the details, but the queen kills all possible candidates to the throne. Now, what's her motivation? So she could be in charge. Her son dies, kill the rest of the royal candidates, and now I can main, maintain power and basically be the queen and the first in charge in the land. However, verse 11. But Jehoshabeath, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus Jehoshabeath, the daughter of King Jehoram, and the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, because she was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah, so that she did not put him to death. Okay, that's a lot. That's a lot. A lot of weird, weird names and stuff, but um, Jehoshabeath and her, her husband, um, Jehoiada, who is a priest, basically risk their lives and save one of the sons. Who's, who's a child, who's a baby. And so they, they go into hiding, they save this child, and they risk their lives, not just to, to save the baby, but ongoing for the years that come after that. There is a hidden secret heir to the throne, the rightful king. Then it says this, but in the seventh year, Jehoiada took courage and entered into a covenant with the commanders of hundreds, Azariah, the son of Jehoram, Ishmael, the son of Johanan, Azariah, the son of Obed, Messiah, the son of Adiah, and Elishaphat, the son of Zikri. What's, What's going on? Jehoiada, the adopted father of this heir apparent to the throne, has been in hiding, but now he takes courage. 
and he says enough is enough. And he starts talking and building alliances with the other commanders of Israel. And basically he's saying, there's, there's a, a rightful king. There, the, the king still has a son and we've kept him in hiding from the evil queen. And now we must take up arms and overthrow the evil king and crown the rightful king to the throne. And, and they lead this charge, this revolution, and they're victorious. They succeed. And it says this, and after that, Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. I mean, this is incredible. Child in secret, they go off, they overthrow the evil queen who's been ruling the land and turning from the Lord. And then all the people and the leaders, they make a covenant. We are gonna serve the Lord. We will not walk in the ways of the evil queen. We will walk in the ways of the Lord and serve him. I mean, just, just the details, this is like a legit movie. You know, think about this, like the opening scene, the kings, all the people are running, the queen's killing people, and then a brave young couple take the baby and take it into hiding. And there's this secret true heir to the throne. The boy grows to about the age of seven and his adopted father once again risks his life, drives out the wickedness from the land and the movie ends with the child being set on the throne. And then they made a covenant to serve the Lord. Joash was, and then it ends, and then there's like the black screen. And Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zabiah of Beersheba. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all of the days of Jehoiada the priest. Credits. Awesome, happy ending. This, this movie's great. You get a good soundtrack on that, that's, that's a hit. And you want it to end like that, but that's, remember the pattern. That's not the pattern. It goes on. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them and they abandoned the house of the Lord the God of their fathers and serve the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for the guilt of their sins. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. They testified against him, but they would not pay attention. It's horrible, beautiful story. Jehoiada risked his life, installs the king. And then for 40 years, 40 years, the king does right. He's a good king. He does what's right in the eyes of the Lord. He serves him faithfully. Then the adoptive father, the, the man who's risked his life, passes away and he starts to listen to the voices of others. And in a, few short in, in a very short time, he's turned from the Lord. He's worshiping idols. And now God has to send him prophets to warn them. Verse 19, he sends prophets among them to bring them back. The message is repent and return. Return to me but they didn't listen. Now check this out. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. Okay, so again, there's all these names, but we gotta pay attention to the details. God raises up another prophet to warn the king. 
And who is he? He's named Zechariah, and he's the son of Jehoiada, the adoptive father who risked his life again and again and again to save the king. He's the man who put him on the throne and guided him for 40 years. Now the son of that man comes and warns the king. How does it end? But they conspired against him, and by the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord, in the court of the temple. Verse 22. Then Joash the king did not, thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zachariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. That's dark. That's heavy. It's weighty. That's a, a horrible, tragic story. You kill the son of the man who laid it all on the line to save you. But do you see the pattern now? Wicked rulers, warnings, return, repent. Destruction is, is what's de- down that path. So return to the path of the Lord. The rulers hear the warnings of the prophets and at, 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 at best, they just don't listen to him. At worst, they abuse, mistreat, and kill the prophets from God. And I'll take all of that back with you to the parable that Jesus is telling to the religious ruling class of the day. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Does this sound familiar? Now there's a couple historical details that will really bring this to life. So first thing you need to understand about a giant wedding feast like this, being thrown by a king for his son in in the historical context, is that at first there would have been a general invitation that went out, and it wouldn't have like an exact time like we do. It wouldn't be, at Thursday at 2 p.m. we're going to eat. These types of celebrations lasted for days, and there's tons of preparation, tons of work, tons of, if you're bringing in festivities, performers, um, different types of foods, different servings, I mean, it's gonna take so much work that it necessitates a few days of celebration, and that necessitates a sort of first invitation that goes out. And it doesn't have the exact time or date. It just says like, be on the lookout. In early spring, we're gonna have a massive celebration. And you would respond to that, to the king. You'd be like, okay, we'll be there. We'll be on the lookout. And then when everything was made right, when everything like the, the, the calf was fattened to the right degree, the cooking is being done, the right performers, festivities, everything's in there. Then you would send out this second invitation to call the people back. So you are calling back the people who have already been made aware and essentially said, we'll be there. So what happens when you tell the people, it's ready, now it's finally ready? They don't come. They don't come. Those who said they would be there don't show up. Now there's another layer to this. To not show up to the king's son's wedding festivities is at minimum a great disrespect and slap into the face of the king. At most, it's an act of treason. Now, it, it's, it's not easy for us to see that because we live in the modern world, we're democracy, we have presidents, like we, we, we can get away with talking bad about like our political leaders type, type of thing. But 
in this day, you, can't, you don't disrespect the king and live and get away with it. You don't say, oh yeah, I'll be there. And then at the time to honor the son, you're just like, some things came up. This is the king's son. You better be there. And I'll show you why in the next section you're going to see it's more likely this is very close to treason rather than just something simple as disrespect. For you to not to, to show up to something you already told the king you would come to is, is a big, big deal. And you're going to see just how treasonous this act really is. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves, they've been slaughtered. So now's the time. I told you in the early spring it was going to happen, but now's the time. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So in the ancient world, if you were to mistreat the messenger of the king, that is like equal to the same act being done to the king himself. You're telling the king what you think of him. Now there's layers to this because what's the celebration of? It's, it's, it's the celebration of the son, which is part of the royal line. And if he's being married, then that means that that marriage is going to produce another part of the royal line. So this is coming and celebrating is acknowledging your submission to the royal line. We are servants of the king. We honor the king. To miss that at minimum is disrespect, but you can see this is more than disrespect. They are willfully ignoring the king's son, and when he sends out messengers, they kill them. These are treasonous acts, and a king in the ancient world would not stand for it. He would not stand for it. These people would face his judgment, and that's what happens. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the to the wedding feast all that you may find, as many as you may find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So look at the first half of this parable. The king sending out his messengers, his servants, come to the feast, come to the feast, but they don't listen. And sometimes they just don't listen. Sometimes they mistreat the servants and sometimes they kill the servants. Now, after all we went through, does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? You understand now, like Jesus is taking all these patterns in the Old Testament prophetic tradition and compressing them in a few short verses in story form. And you better believe that people listening would know exactly what he's doing. But then it reaches sort of the climax of the parable. And it's like, justice finally comes. And, you're, and when you're reading this, you're like, yes. They, they, they were evil and corrupt. They mistreated people. They did not rule righteously. The kings were corrupt. They did the prophets wrong. They tortured them. They killed them. When you read that story of Zechariah, Jehoiada's son being killed, you're like, finally, judgment and justice has come. And then there's even better news because judgment and justice have come to the wicked, but then other people get invited. It says now, messengers, go out and invite anybody and everybody. It says, go to the main road. So this is like saying, don't go to the, to the city where sort of the, the elite and the kind of religious ruling class are. Go, go, go on the main roads and find the rural villages. Invite 
everybody to the king's son's wedding feast. And it sounds like great news. Judgment and justice has come to the wicked and now everyone else is getting invited. There's a twist, a big twist. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. See, you were sort of you were sort of liking the parable. Yeah, I, I hate those guys. They're wicked. They're evil. I'm so glad everyone gets to come. And then it's like, it's all good news. Everyone gets to come and then someone isn't dressed appropriately. They don't have the right clothes on. And the king says, cast them into the outer darkness. Whoa. And when you're honest with yourself, it seems like a little bit of overreaction. It's like he didn't wear the right things and you're going to cast him into outer darkness to the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? So what's, like, what's going on here? Okay, first thing to note, how does he address this, how does the king address the man who doesn't have on the right wedding garments? He says, friend, friend, how did you get in here without the right wedding garments? So you need to note that he didn't say, I didn't want you in here. You weren't supposed to be here. He says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? So there's, there's, this, there's this desire, but there's not an allowance for him to be in there. So what's up with the wedding garment? Well, all throughout scripture, um, clothing, garments, robes, the washing of clothing or garments or robes is associated with being made clean, whole, righteous. It's associated with repentance. It's like you have uh, dirty garments on, but then when you repent, you're, you're washed, the clothing is washed, and you are whole and you are clean before the Lord. And so it's this idea that this person sort of like snuck in, but they didn't meet one of the requirements. There's like a prerequisite, a requirement to being a part of the celebrations of the wedding feast of the sun. And that's, you have to have the clean wedding garments on. This is a really important note. Essentially, Jesus is saying, you can't just sneak in here. If you're gonna come in here, you have to honor the king. By, by showing up without the right wedding garments, you are, a, you are disrespecting the king. You might have not liked the fact that these other guys were disrespecting the king by not accepting the invitation, but you're just as bad because you showed up and then you dishonored the king. And Jesus is saying before anybody comes in, you have to do something. You have to be made clean. You have to be made whole. You have to be forgiven. And that comes about through repentance, through faith in Christ. Now, why is that so important and essential to the parable? Because there's it's very easy to look at the sort of religious ruling class of the day and all the evil they're doing and go, oh, Jesus doesn't like those types of people, but he likes this type of people. You know what I mean? It's really easy to be like, these are the evil guys, these are the wicked guys, of course Jesus condemns them, but for all of us, he really liked, I mean, we're, we're good. He invited us to the wedding. 
And Jesus is saying, no, no, they don't get to get in because they didn't accept the invitations. But don't think you could come in here without repentance. You must repent. You must honor the king as well. No one just gets to get in. You must acknowledge the king's son. And if you don't acknowledge the king's son and own up to the fact that your garments are not fit for the wedding, you're not allowed in. In other words, you too must repent. You too must honor the son. You don't just get to go in and act like it's all cool. This idea is expressed in the book of Revelation. Again, with the the theme of clothing and washing. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Outside are the murderers, those who continue to practice wickedness. If you're going to come in, you need to be made clean. And how does that happen in the scriptures? You come to the king with your dirty garments and you say, make me clean, make me whole, forgive me. I know I am unworthy to be at the king's table, but I'm ready to accept the invitation. Forgive me and wash me. And what does God do? Friend, I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad you took the invitation, but repentance is required. Faith in Christ is required. You don't just get to sneak in. Now, um, this issue of forgiveness is a big deal, a very, very big deal um, for a number of reasons. And, And there's all kinds of different types of people, but depending upon who you are, you approach forgiveness differently. But you have to understand what Jesus is teaching us is that Like every single human being gets an invite, but every single human being better come repentant, ready to honor the son. If you don't do that, you're not gonna be allowed into the wedding feast. And so for some people, the news of forgiveness, you you, you wrestle with shame and guilt. And so you know the sweetness of forgiveness. You've been there in life where you felt guilt for things you've done and you felt shame for your past. And and to hear the good news that God, the highest judge in the land, looks down upon you and doesn't say guilty, but he says, not guilty, your sins are forgiven. Like the sweetness of the news of forgiveness is beautiful to you. And sometimes there's other people who... You know, we don't think about that too much. And partially it's because um, we can develop a whole bunch of coping mechanisms and ways to block out clear reflection on our true state and condition. And on top of that, our culture doesn't even have categories anymore for things like guilt. We, we just think everything is like a, a guilt and sin. Those are just socially constructed words that are used by those in power to manipulate people. But if like you truly reflect on your condition you will own up to the fact that I do not come with clean hands to the king's son's wedding and I need someone to wash me clean. I need someone to make me right. And that's where forgiveness comes in. Forgiveness is so beautiful because either you feel 
shame and guilt and you feel you're not good enough and that's where forgiveness comes in. And then on the other end, you could live your life just trying to deny what's obvious. Like you got it all together. You got it all together, man. You're not great, you're not perfect. Talk to the people closest to you. Ask them, tell you what they really think about you. So the beautiful, sweet news of forgiveness is very powerful. Now, there's one more element to all of this. Is in one sense, this, this parable highlights this clear pattern all throughout the Bible. Evil rulers, God sends prophets to warn and then they don't listen and judgment happens to them but before that, usually the prophet is killed. So that's the pattern that Jesus is doing. But Jesus is also highlighting a different pattern, a pattern that's actually more dominant than the other. And it's the one expressed from the beginning pages of the Bible to the last pages of the Bible. And the pattern is this. God sees human rebellion and wickedness and he sends people to warn people about the path they're on. You are on a road to destruction. This only leads to destruction. So I am sending you people to warn you, repent, return to me, return to me. I love you. I am sending prophets not to condemn you first and foremost, but to warn you of what lies ahead. So repent and return. And why does God do that? Because God's end goal is always grace. He sends the prophets. He sends people to warn you in your life. You're on the wrong path. You're on the wrong road. Return to me because I will give you grace. I know you will come with dirty garments, dirty clothes, but I will give you clean ones. I will restore you. I have reserved a place for you at the wedding feast of my son. The dominant pattern throughout the scripture is man's rebellion and God's graciousness. It's grace upon grace upon grace. Return, repent, return. And when you see that, you understand the true heart of God. And that's why Jesus' parable isn't just, well, let me look down upon the religious ruling class. Remember, they were invited. Just like everyone was invited. Everyone is invited. Many are called. But man, you don't get in unless you honor the son. You don't get in unless you honor the king. And you do that with faith and repentance. There's one more final element to this that makes makes the good news of God's grace even better. There's so much stuff going on in the passage that that you, you focus on. Man, the judgment, this guy who got kicked out of the wedding feast, he's thrown into darkness. And man, this is a heavy passage, but you you gotta stop and remember one thing. God sends out the messengers to invite everybody, which means you got an invitation. Okay. At that point, you have to stop and ask yourself, who am I to be invited to the king's celebration? Like, who are you that you're so special that the king of the land would invite you to the wedding of his son? Who am I? Who are you? Who are any of us? Who's anybody? that the King of kings and the Lord of lords would invite us to the wedding of his son. I mean, we got family members who won't even invite us to birthday parties. And the King of kings sends you an invite to his wedding? Who are you? Who am I? Who am any of us? And when you reflect on that, you really begin to realize the grace of God. I don't even deserve an invite. 
I don't even have the right clothes. I shouldn't be there. I feel like I'm an imposter even showing up. But I got the invite. It has my name on it. And if I come in faith and repentance, there will be clothes ready for me. And I will enjoy the greatest wedding feast that's ever been thrown. It's crazy good news. It's, it's unthinkable. Who am I? Like, just reflect on that for a moment. Who am I? God invites me. God invites me to his son's wedding. So as we transition to communion, we'll reflect on a couple things. First, um, God is gracious, but he takes sin serious, right? He sins, I mean, he's patient all throughout the Old Testament, but he's like, you can't just go on in wickedness forever and ever and ever. Destruction will come. But that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is first and foremost right relationship with his people. And so before we take communion, reflect upon your, your state. God takes sin serious. If there's areas in your life where you're in complete rebellion to him, heed the warning. Repent of that sin. Entrust yourself to him. Sin is not a joke. It's not a simple thing. Repent. And then coming out of that for everybody, man, we, we, get to, we get to go to the king's celebration. We're invited to his feast. I don't have any right to be there. And we continue on in that invitation. We are his messengers that say, I got an invite, man. Guess what? I got an invite for you too. Nah, man, you ain't got no invite for me. No, I have one for you too. For your whole family. Your whole family. Let me tell you what the good king has done. Let's stand as we take communion and reflect on what the good king has done. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body given to you. Emphasis on the words given to you. It wasn't, Jesus wanted you there. The invitations are for you. He, he wants you there. It's not as if God is like, oh man, the, the, I don't really want this person there, but you know. No. He says, this is my body. It's given for you. The king gave up his life for you. So let's remember Likewise, Jesus takes the cup, the blood of the new covenant. It's his blood poured out. So there's that pattern of the prophets being sent and they're ignored, harassed, abused, and killed. And then at the pinnacle of that pattern, what occurs? Jesus comes and he comes into Jerusalem and he's giving the last of all the warnings. Repent and return. Repent and return. And what do they do to Jesus? He's crucified. But all of this was done in God's plan because in him dying, he is laying down his life to ensure that the invitations go out. By the shedding of the blood of our king, we are brought in. So if you've been faithful to us, Lord, we commit our faithfulness to you. And Father, as we close in worship,
may we give proper adoration to your son. And we thank you that when it's all said and done, heaven is pictured as the the great celebration, the wedding feast between the groom and his bride. And in the image that you give us, you give us Jesus as the faithful and true husband and the church, his people, as the bride. And so we look forward to the great celebration when all things are made new, when evil is done away with and your glory will fill the new heavens and the new earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.